and welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Uh, on the back side, you'll get some questions to go deeper into what we're talking about today. Uh, my, we're, right now at Element, we're doing this thing through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. And my messages are typically paralleling the book and not actually doing everything that's in a given chapter. So these uh, sermon notes and questions are going to go along with what I talk about on Sunday mornings. But if you want to, you can pick up a copy of the book and go through that as well because there's a lot more stuff in there. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and Then Events in Uversion. We'll come up by GP in your smartphone, you'll get sermon notes, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. Also, we have these 3x5 cards. Uh, actually, they're 4x6. Sarah measured it and told me, quit saying 3x5. So I got 4x6 cards. I can't measure, whatever. It's, I'm eyeballing it, right? I'm getting older, I can't see. Anyway, uh, if you have any questions that you would like to ask that maybe this series spurs in your mind, or maybe a burning question you've had about the scriptures or the Bible or God or whatever, you can grab one of these off uh, one of the community tables throughout the room, fill out your question, throw it in the basket at the Welcome Center, and we will come back at some point and answer those on a Sunday morning or in a blog on our website, because we want to make sure that we go through the questions that you guys have arisen in your mind from the series that we're doing, all right? Hey, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 15. And it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And I'll explain what that kind of means today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a gracious and good God who has spoken truth and beauty and life into the mess that we of people have made of your world. And I ask that as we begin to see the goodness and truth of who you are and what you have done, we'd be a people who live in awe of you. And and we would give you great glory and that we would live in the joy that you constantly provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we're doing this series, as I said, through the reason for God. One of the reasons we're doing this is because we wanted people to understand that our faith is a reasonable faith. Uh, there are there are questions of archaeology and, and science and all kinds of, and that it is a reasonable faith in terms of all of that stuff. And what we want you to do is be a reasonable people who speak about this reasonable faith in reasonable ways. And I know that not everybody in the world today is reasonable, uh, but part of the problem is that we often think that we're reasonable and nobody else is. But if in your life you think everybody else is wrong and you're right and everybody else is unreasonable and you're the only reasonable one you're probably the unreasonable one. So, Merry Christmas. There you go. Uh, We've spent the last eight weeks talking about certain objections to Christianity and faith in Jesus. Uh, In the the book, Keller does this thing. He calls it an intermission. In old old movies, uh, when they had like a double feature, you'd get an intermission between your two movies. Intermission. And then you'd go over to the snack bar and buy snacks and come back. So he does this intermission between two different halves of his book. And he transitions in the book between questions about arguments and faith again Against Jesus to now he starts to give you arguments for the faith and what that looks like. And if you are keeping notes, you probably didn't notice this, but this is week 10. Uh, last week was week 8. Okay, so what happened to week 9? Well, originally, week 9 was supposed to be Eric Jafruti. He was supposed to be up here this week. and then, But I'm actually uh, at a wedding in Phoenix next weekend, so we switched weeks. But you never even would have noticed if I didn't say anything. So I don't know why I said anything, but there you go. Uh, 
suffice to say, read chapter 10 in Tim Keller's book this week if you have it uh, to go along with what I'm talking about today. Again, I'm just going to parallel it, though, beside it. And so, again, he starts to define Christianity in the book now because Christianity, if you go to different churches, a lot of times they can almost look like different religions between the church that you go to. And part of this is that Christianity is meant to fit into cultural containers. And this is what it looks like. Okay? You, you have the gospel. The gospel is the unchanging truths of what God has done to rescue and redeem lost and broken people, that he has, he has sought us and loved us and bought us and brought us in. And that gospel, the truths of that, will go into culture. And it will separate truth from lies. And in the midst of separate truth for lies, then we will embrace diversity and songs and food and humor and dress. And hopefully different nationalities will come together and worship God together. And this then becomes the church. That becomes our modes and our forms of worship. But then that always goes back to the gospel because the gospel never changes. It's always the same. But as it goes into culture and becomes the church, those things change. But it always goes back to what the truths of the gospel actually are. Tim Smith called this the perpetual reformation of the church. Always going to the gospel, but going into cultures. And this is why Christianity can really go into every culture of the world and make sense to where people are. Now, Christians, I don't know if you know this, haven't been the best at always separating culture and the gospel. Like, there's been some very large theological rifts in the history of the church. And sometimes these are good, and we can kind of argue and talk about the things of the faith that draws closer to who God is and to truly believe the right things, but it's bad when we want to elevate tradition above the truth of Jesus. The first great division in the Christian church was between what we call the Greek or Orthodox Church today and the Roman Church, which we call the Catholic Church today. There are a bunch of schisms, but the really big one took place in the 11th century, 1054 to be exact. Uh, The second big rift is what we call the Western Church, where the Catholic Church was, and that then split into Protestantism and Catholicism. And it's really interesting because the major difference between these three is really practice and tradition. In terms of like basic high-level theology, all these believe in the Trinity. Uh, we believe that Jesus is God, that he died to pay for the sin of mankind, and salvation is given by a gift of grace. And so what Keller does is he really starts to, to drill down into this and ask some questions, though, because how does the church then act as the vehicle for Jesus in the world? Uh, how is grace received? How does Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish our salvation? And when you ask those questions, you really start to see the divide and how different people view the work of Jesus in that. And so this is why, over the next four weeks, we're going to more focus on doctrine and what God is doing. My, my good friend Trevor Carpenter used to always say that doctrine matters. And that's because it does. Because if we just believe that the gospel is good for one day after we die, we got fire insurance, we go to heaven... It may not change how we live our lives today, but if we believe the gospel is good for every moment of our lives, that redemption actually speaks into everything that we see and everything that we do, that our worship is not just one day on a Sunday singing some songs, but it's every day and everything that we do, well, that then changes everything. It changes how we live. And so doctrine matters. So now we're going to start walking into the places of doctrine. Again, the first eight weeks were to show how Christianity is a reasonable faith in light of modern skepticism, that we can believe in Jesus in a world of doubters because it's reasonable. But now we're going to talk about how that faith actually makes a difference and works in us. Uh, Keller actually tells the story of how when Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin went into outer space as the first man into outer space, he comes back and he makes this statement. He says that he hadn't seen or found God. 
which C.S. Lewis was alive at the time, and C.S. Lewis says, well, that's dumb. That would be like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. He goes, that's, that's not really how it works. And so C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, if there's a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that could be put in a lab and analyzed with empirical methods. He'd relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in a play. Characters might be able to know a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. And so C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, I'm, and he believes in God, he says, as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's a wonderful line. And this is what the gospel is supposed to do. We're supposed to be able to see the world around us through the lens of what God has done. By the gospel, we see everything else. And so the next few weeks, what we're going to do is look into the sun, so to speak, to make sense of what we see. Because God, the great playwright, has revealed himself and is knowable. Uh, that we are made in his image, that he calls us back into relationship with him. And that means our mind and our hearts can beat in time with, with his heart. And this means that we're going to look at the Bible and what it says now about the human condition. Uh, next week, which would have been this week, uh, Eric's going to talk about uh, clues and knowledge for God, that uh, God has not left us without an excuse for not believing in him, that uh, we're going to talk about God's welcome mat, morality, and human rights, and nature and existence. But today, lucky you, we're going to talk about the problem and nature of sin. You're really excited, right? Yeah, okay. Here we go. Uh, back in our Didn't See That Coming series at the beginning of this year, we spent a lot of time pro- talking about the problem of sin. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, it explains the contrast of God's vision for the world versus the world of our human experience. Uh, because the difference, I think, requires an explanation for the things that we see. And there's two important words that I always tell you you got to remember that come about in the book of Genesis. The first one is this word that's called shalom. Uh, that word means peace. It's a beautiful word. Today, sometimes Jews will use it to say hello and goodbye. Like you say goodbye, I say hello, shalom, shalom. That's not how the song goes, but it, but it could go like that, right? It, it's so much more than just peace, though. It's the idea that everything's in the right place, in the right time, in the right way, uh, right relationships around you, that you're just kind of beaten in time. It's all good. Everything's right with you and God. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, maybe just for like a second or a moment. And it's like, oh, and you always remember like the time that you felt that. That's, that is how we were meant to live. Every single day in peace and shalom with who God is. The second word is this word called tov, and the word tov we translate as the word good, but it refers to everything good in the broadest sense. It is truth and beauty and love and life and hope. And God is the one who gets to call what is actually good. And so you ask, from creation, from this pristine shalom and tov, this this grace and harmony and goodness and peace between God and man and man and man and man and nature, how does it come to what it is today? How do we understand the harsh and sometimes hostile workings of nature? If men and women are meant to procreate and have babies, why does a baby coming out hurt like crazy? And if God created us to be able to be naked and feel no shame, why does being naked cause so much shame? And how is the existence of evil in the world to then be accounted for? And the scriptures teach very, very clearly that the answer is not that the earth or creation is evil. It's not that it's metaphysical, but the problem is moral. That evil comes about and sin comes because it is humanly brought about. God gives humanity all these vestiges of free will, but that is only beneficial so far as it is worked out in accordance with God's divine will. And any abuse of the power that God gives his people makes disaster always inescapable. We are meant to live in peace and goodness, and yet so often we live in self-sufficiency. The Genesis account in the Bible shows what sin does. 
Humanity sinned against God because we think we knew better than him how to live our lives. And sin results in many different things. And in our culture, when you say sin, our culture doesn't really understand what that means. So I'm going to give you, as I have done before, four things that sin is. Okay, First off, sin is the disruption of that thing called shalom. It's a disruption of God's peace. We are created at peace with God, peace with one another, with creation, even ourselves. And sin is all the ways we disrupt that peace that God intends for us to live in. We are a people who constantly violate the peace that God extends to us. Second thing is that sin is then rebellion. It's rebellion. That we don't like the way God set things up. We think we know how to do things better than God. And so we're always running off our own direction and really ruining everything. We rebel against the world and the way God made it, and so we destroy ourselves and the world in the process. The third thing is that sin is participation in the way of death. Uh, God says to the people in the garden, you sin, you die. And they actually died. Well, they kept on living. No, they, they died. Death is this idea of separation. They separated themselves from their source of life. God is our life. And we have separated ourselves from him. God places in creation to create like our creator to make life and families and cultures that honored him. And sin is all the ways that we steer things to separate from God himself, that it brings about death. And this could be individually, could be in a family, it could be globally. And then sin, the actual definition of it, is missing the mark. It's an archery term where you miss what you're aiming at. And our problem today is when we hear this word called sin, we tend to think, oh, it's all someone's judging me. That's all that it is. When the scripture teaches that this is the problem with the whole world. Yes, it's a problem with you, but it's also a problem in the entire world. Why do so many people have a problem with the word sin? Because we always think that we're okay and nobody else is. That we are the ones who have all the answers. What sin does is it likes to convince us that a lie is actually the truth. Anybody ever watched Star Trek? I didn't ask if you liked it. Have you ever seen Star Trek? Okay? All right. In Star Trek, there is this thing called the Prime Directive. This is the Prime Directive. You do not interfere with the evolution of any particular planet or civilization. Now, sometimes I like Star Trek, but what makes it good is they're always messing that up and doing that, and they've got to, they've got to fix that stuff. But this is said because the, the person who made Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, had this idea that all existence and all creatures are inevitably moving towards higher and higher forms of mental and social and physical life. And so you can't do anything to ever mess that up. Star Trek is based on this premise that humanity is ultimately good in and of themselves. And if people who have that view, it's very painful for them to look around the world and realize what humanity does to one another. And yet people still cling to it. Even if it's a, well, at least I'm okay if everybody else is messed up, we still, they'll cling to that, not realizing that when you think like that, you're pretty messed up because you just judge everybody else around you. Let me give you an example. H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, he wrote this book called The Time Machine. You might have heard about it. In 1937, this is what he wrote. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imagination? that it will achieve unity and peace, that it will live, the children of our blood and lies will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. Sounds very optimistic, right? Nine years later, after World War II, 1946, he writes this. Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. Do you see the difference? 
right? This optimism, oh, everything's going to be great, and seeing what people do to one another, and it becomes pessimism. In the 1850s, there was this book, it was called The Coral Island. It's about a young, bunch of young English schoolboys who are shipwrecked on an island, and they had to build a whole new world and civilization. And they make this utopia. It is peace and love and equality. It's very nice. In 1960, William Golding comes along, and he writes the very same premise in a book called The Lord of the Flies. And in the book, The Lord of the Flies, English schoolboys, they're shipwrecked on, a, on an island, and it doesn't turn out the exact same way. And they buy for power, they kill each other, they hunt each other down. Because this is what happens when we think humanity is the answer. You know, H.G. Wells, his whole mindset changed. You know, the, the Coral Island, the Lord of the Flies, the whole thing changed. This is, this is kind of what happened. Uh, several hundred years before this, all of Western society was essentially based on what we would call a Christian vision. It doesn't mean that it, they were Christians. There's just this Christian vision. This is the vision that the world is a difficult place. It is messed up because of mankind's sin. But God has spoken into the world that we have messed up. And he has come to offer us rescue and redemption and hope and grace and life. And through his goodness, the kingdom of God can actually break through into this realm. And our life and our world can actually change because of it. In the 1700s, though, along comes this thing called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment says human beings, by use of their own reason and their own power, can figure everything out and we can get better and better. This is what happened at the fall of mankind in the very first place. Human beings are the answer. We will figure this thing out. We're not doing a great job of that if you look at the world around us. And so what happened is this whole idea of sin, they kept trying to push to the side and they say, this talk of sin is going to lower our self-esteem. There shouldn't be anybody in authority over me. I know the world I want. I know the world we should go get. We should make that together and make our world. And the result has not been greater optimism. The result has been more and more pessimism as we look at how horrible people are with each other. Uh, Like last weekend, a group of people gather in a synagogue in Pittsburgh to worship God. And a gunman comes in and he shoots 10 or more people because he hates Jewish people. A couple weeks ago, a man sent pipe bombs to Democrats that he disagreed with. Last year, a man shot a bunch of Republican senators because he disagreed with them. A couple years ago, a man opened fire in a nightclub where gay people congregated. And we always want to say it's those other people that believe those other things. No, it's all of us because evil is in the human heart. And when this happens, there's all these timely questions that get raised about it. But, but those questions that I think we could talk about, like armed security, death penalty, guns, mental health, all that stuff, all those questions do is cause more division. And, but we keep talking about those things, and we stop talking about the one timeless question that we really should be talking about. And it's much more troubling because the one question reminds us that our common humanity, we are up against something that human ingenuity, ideology, and politics can't fix. And that is the problem with the human heart. And so people say things like, well, where is God in this? Will there ever be justice? And if you are a person who believes in Jesus, those questions shouldn't freak you out, because we've talked about those earlier in the series, but they should always lead us back to the cross and what Jesus did to rescue us. Not to give pat answers, but to look towards reality. See, biblical Christianity, it is not this shallow optimism where you slap a smile on your face and go, I'm going to go to heaven. And you, and you try to ignore everything that happens around you. But it's also not pessimism as you look towards the evil that is in the world. What we do as people who believe in Jesus is we look to Jesus in everything. He steps into our broken world that we had broken. And it reminds us of relationship with God that he can restore all things. Everything that stands between the ideal, that kingdom of God, and our sin-soaked world has been shattered in him. In 1849, Soren Kierkegaard said this, Sin is, in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. 
That's, we don't want to be transparent. We hide ourselves even from God. This is what Adam and Eve did when they first fell in the garden. They covered themselves and hid from God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Then he says this, faith is that the self in being itself and wanting to be itself is grounded transparently in God. That we refuse to trust even many times what we say about ourselves and we're going to trust what God has actually said about us. That we listen to the things that he has said and that he has done. We stop trying to seek our own truth and enlightenment apart from who he is. Many people think when they hear the word sin that sin is just breaking God's rules. Oh, you broke all God's rules. But sin is so much more deeper and pervasive than that. Sin is always trying to separate us from life. Kierkegaard believed that human beings were made not only to believe in God in a general way, but to love him above everything else. And when that happens, our identity will be built upon who God says that we actually are. This is why in this series, we talked about the Ten Commandments one week, and how this is actually about freedom, and it's not a straitjacket. God reminds the Israelites who he is, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall know other gods before me. You were in slavery. You cannot release yourself. So I came to set you free. This is the picture of our redemption in Christ. We are in slavery. We can't free ourselves. Jesus comes to set us free. Then he says, she'll have no other gods before me. That's not God being insecure. Oh, please don't worship somebody that's not me. That's not what he's saying. God's reminding us there is one God, and it's not you. You need to remember that. Because so often we walk around this world thinking that we are God. And every time we seek our identity apart from him, it inevitably leads towards sin and not life. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. So the natural tendency of what sin does is separation causes things to fall apart. Like we will die and we will literally fall apart. This happens to everything though, from flowers to rocks. Flowers fall apart faster than you. Rocks fall apart slower than you. But they still will break and become dust and blow away and stuff like that. Uh, Matthew 5.13, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this is Jesus reminding of who we are to be in him, but what sin does in our lives when we stop being this taste and flavor that he calls us to be in the world. Now think of this uh, in relationally and socially, right? Relationships all tend to go bad. Only with great effort can you have relationships stay together. It shows what Jesus says is right, that the natural tendency in everything is really to greater disorder. And this is why our world today is always falling back on racism and sexism and ageism and class warfare. We're always trying to fight each other. This is why governments who say, hey, we're all about peace, will quickly and quietly bring about the enslavement of their own people. This is why I think as Americans in our country, we all need to be people who begin to wake up a little bit in this. Uh, when we don't keep an eye on certain things, bad things begin to happen. And that is sin rearing its head. Look at marriages, okay? you got the ultimate relationships, right? How hard is it to keep a marriage relationship intact and thriving? It, you ever have an argument with your spouse? No. Okay, so you're a liar too, right? No, they're, they're, it's, it's tough. I ask my wife all the time, I'm always like, how am I doing? Do you need anything from me? Are we doing okay? And she's always like, yeah, stop asking. But I'm not going to stop asking because I know I'm a knucklehead and I don't see half the things that I do half the time. So I'm always like, how am I doing? It's funny, last service I saw someone look at their spouse and go, because <laughs> they did it too, apparently. But, but crime and racism and, and war and class struggle, even like labor management problems and divorce, all these things show the natural tendency in the social area is towards disorder, is to disintegrate. And this is why, as Christians, we talk about why Jesus came. 
Jesus came to redeem and save and to restore, to fix the mess that we had made and that we continue to make. Christianity teaches that the world is broken because of what we have done. But God has stepped into it in the person of Christ to rescue. And so Jesus isn't just here to fix it with duct tape and put a band-aid on it. This is about restoration and renewal and reconciliation. That when this happens and we understand in our lives, we may not be the brightest people in the world, but we are now called to be on mission with God, to bring heaven to earth and how we now begin to live. He calls us to actually live differently because we were intended for so much more. We are people who are meant to be overwhelmed and undone with the idea of rescue and redemption. In regard to sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says it like this. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is This is what the scriptures are all about. We are a people who run headlong towards sin. We have no right to have a relationship with God, but God comes in the person of Jesus and he takes away our sin and places it on Christ and we get Jesus' righteousness given to us. The scriptures are all about the glory of God and yes, we get redemption, but it's all more importantly about the revealing of Jesus because even though it's about our salvation, it's about Jesus. And God doesn't choose to save us because he's lonely or he needs people around him to love him or things like that. God has no deficiency in himself. God saves because God himself is good. When we talk about the fall, we always go back to you know, Genesis and Adam and stuff. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, the Apostle Paul reminds us, For as in Adam all die. We, we are a people who live like Adam. We separate ourselves from life. We run from God. For as in Adam all die. But then it says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, sin should have been our end. It should have been. But yet, and I think in our world many times daily it looks like it's, it's about to be the end. But this is why Jesus comes. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth. He is the life. He illuminates. He's the truth, meaning he guides us to what would be true and real reality. Basic reality 101. How about this? Uh, you, you have light in this room so you can see the chairs, right? You sat down in one, you're like, where's the chair? You saw them with, with your eyes because the light. Chairs don't reveal the light. The light reveals the chairs. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is Jesus saying, I am ultimate reality. Trust me. Trust me. And you will walk with the Father and you will have a relationship with me. Jesus calls us to be the people that he made us to be. And this, again, is why we talked about how some people rebel against the exclusiveness of Christianity's claim about sin and Jesus. Jesus says he's the only way. And then people will say, well, if you believe that, you're saying other religions don't have as much truth in them, or that Jesus is the light, and therefore other religions don't have the light. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer to that is, right, right. It's it's just how it is. If you follow Jesus, he doesn't give us the option to think that everything points to the same reality, because it doesn't. He says, I am the light. You are not the answer. I am the answer. That's what he says. Every founder of every religion says, I'm a prophet, I'm going to point you to God. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm a prophet. He says, I'm God. I'm not just pointing to the light, I am the light. And some people think that when Christians think this, it's going to make them very self-centered, that we're going to be, oh, so much better than everybody else. Not at all. Because when you embrace the true reality of Christ's rescue of us, we understand that we were so horrible that Jesus died for our sin, to rescue us, to bring us back to relationship with God. And that makes us humble because we realize the ultimate reality of who he is. 
This is so important to understand. Jesus is the light of the world. If he's not the light of the world, then he's darkness, and he's leading us deeper into sin. But if Jesus is the light, if he's the only way we're ever going to see reality, if only Jesus can renew the world so relationships stay together, if only Jesus can renew our hearts so we can see what the world really is and what God calls us to be, then we can actually be a people who live in hope and grace and new life again. As this is what he calls us into. We can be a people of renewed hope. Let me take this a step further. Uh, because, you know, Jesus brings hope and life in the mess of our world. But when in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, you're the salt and light of the world, what he's saying is, if you believe and follow me and I have redeemed you, our, your life should now be found in me. And it should begin to look different. Which means, if you are a believer in Jesus, just by your presence in certain places, in a, in a negative way, you're going to reveal certain things. You're going to reveal maybe the dishonesty in your workplace, because you refuse to be dishonest. Uh, you're going to reveal the gossip in your office, because you won't gossip. You're going to reveal the racism maybe in your neighborhood, or the, or the corruption in your own political party. But also, on a positive note, your life by its order, the way in which you handle pressure or take criticism or the way in which you work with uh, people around you or employees or your employer or all that stuff... If you, if you love Jesus and you follow him, that's going to show up in the beauty of how we begin to live our lives. It's going to show up in the environment in which we live. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, In the same way, you let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, a lot of people have a problem with the phrase, they're good works. I think it's an awesome phrase, because there's two Greek words that can be used for good. There's agathos and kalos, and agathos means good in quality, and kalos means beautiful. You know what word Jesus uses? Kalos. How we live is meant to be beautiful because we have been redeemed and restored into relationship with God again. How we live is meant to begin to show the opposite of the problem of sin. I think for believers in Jesus, we sometimes got to ask ourselves the question, is that is our life so beautiful that it shows the contrast between the beauty of Christ and then what's around us? And sometimes this can be hard, right? Because on one hand, the beauty of our life can show the corruption of what's around us. And of course, sometimes that can bring some persecution. But on the other hand, it can also show the joy of what a renewed life and redeemed life is meant to be. Because we don't need to be pessimistic. We don't have to walk around with blinders on our eyes and act like everything's okay. Because we can realize the world's a messed up place. But it's messed up because of us. And that Christ came to redeem it. And he redeems us. And we can actually live and be different in the world around us. Uh, individually, we can become involved in people's lives around, them, around us and show the beauty of Christ. And do you know when Jesus talks about this in here, about this, you are the light of the world, that word's actually plural. It's not singular. He's not just talking to one person or a couple of his disciples. He, this is all of us. You. You. As a people. And this is meant to then go out into the world and make sense when God's children live and work together. You know, they, they, they will know you are followers of me by how you love one another. This is what Jesus teaches. And in Element, we spend a lot of time trying to connect you guys in communities together that learn how to live this out in your lives together. We call this gospel communities. If you're not in one, we want you to be in one, but that's where that is. Because the church is not a club. It's a city. It's like a, a new humanity where people can see what race relationships and business practices and family life and what friendships can be under the lordship of a God who has come to rescue all of us. It's a people who know that the problem of sin is dealt with in Jesus and him alone. And in that, we don't have to try and work it off. We don't have to always try and figure it out or, or pay for it myself. Or I'm going to make myself feel really bad because I sinned again and I told God I wouldn't do it and I did it again. So I'm going to make myself feel really bad and I'm going to you know, whip myself. That's not how it works. It's that Christ has come 
to take away our sin and our shame and bring us back into relationship with him. And we have to understand that that is our most important relationship we will ever have is the one with Christ. But it also then filters down to relationships with one another. Because it also brings us back together. And we can understand that all the sin that has been done in the world was taken upon Jesus on the cross. We don't have to want somebody else to be crucified who offends or hurts us. We can be a people who understand that, okay, Jesus took care of that. And I'm going to go and reconcile and restore and speak words of kindness and grace because he has brought me into relationship with him. When we understand what the world looks like with the problem of sin, which leads to almost all the objections people had to Christianity over the last eight weeks, it all stems from this thing called sin. And that the answer is ultimately found in the person of Christ who has come to rescue us. This is why, and I know we talk about communion every single week. It's where you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of what God did to rescue us, that, that he who knew no sin took on our sin so we get the righteousness of God. God said, you sin, you die. And so Jesus dies in our place to bring us back to the Father again. Jesus didn't do it against his will. Jesus did it because this is what it was going to take to bring about love and justice, which we'll talk about in two weeks, uh, to bring these, all these things together and to understand what salvation and hope actually looks like. So we get to be a people who love and honor him. And that's why we do communion every week. Uh, communion, it, we don't pass it because it's supposed to be a response as you start to think about the things that God has done. And it brings us to a place of resetting and refocusing on our great God who has rescued us. So I'm going to invite you to communion. The band's going to come up. And as they do, there are going to be some leaders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you've been in a place where you just thought sin was this idea of I've broken God's rules and God's mad at me, and not really understanding that, that sin is participation in death and rebellion and, and you're running headlong in the opposite direction that God is calling you to and you want someone to pray with you, they would, they would love to pray with you to talk about some of those things because too often... What sin wants to do is it wants us to believe all of its lies. And the lies that it breeds is this idea that God couldn't love you. That God couldn't redeem or restore you. That, oh, you did that thing again you said you wouldn't do a hundred different times and you did it again. Oh, well, God's just sped up and done with you. Because you've got to understand, God stands above time. And every time you say, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to do that, you do it again, God's not like, oh, I couldn't believe he just did that. Right? That, that's not what God does. God sees all of our life as a completed event. And he steps in to rescue and restore and save us. See, God is so much better than we are. We have to begin to understand the grace and the mercy of how Jesus comes in to rescue and call us back into life with him again. That yes, the problem in the world is sin. It is brought about by us. But the answer is Christ's rescue and redemption of us that brings everything together again. His hope, His life, His grace offered to us. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us giving this part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response to what He's done. Uh, there's food outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes and maybe this week sit down with some people and maybe talk to some of those things. You know, how, would, how do you define sin? Or how have you defined sin in the past? And, and what, how would you define redemption or, or salvation? What does it actually look like? Or maybe how has it looked like where you started the series and where we are today and kind of walked towards this over the last nine slash ten weeks? <laughs> you know, where, where we are today. And, and kind of start to walk deeper in the understanding of that. Because our God is good. Our God is restoring. And as many times as we try and mess things up, He will still bring everything ultimately to his good purpose, because he is sovereign and good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I want to thank you for rescuing and redeeming 
a lost and broken people such as us. I thank you that you have not left us to our own devices where we sinned and that really should have been the end. And yet for you, because you are a God of rescue and hope, it's not the end. You come and you, and you satisfy all the requirements of what stood between us and you in yourself. And you call us back to you. And so I ask that you'd take our hearts and help us begin to see what you're truly calling us to in this world. That by living for you in, in ways of grace and truth and hope and beauty, that yes, sometimes people are going to re- want to rebel against the peacemaking that you call us to bring about. But it doesn't mean that we give up living for you or trusting you even in the midst of adversity. Father, I ask that you would move us to a place in our lives where we seek reconciliation with others around us and forgiveness and hope because you have first reconciled with us. That as many times as we have run away from you and kept running, that you have chased us down and you've called us back to you and you long to restore us to who we were meant to be. So teach us to begin to love because you have first loved us. And teach us to offer grace because you first offered grace to us. And teach us to bring hope and life and joy because you have first brought all those things to us. Have us be a people who live out in this world not as weirdo optimists who have to walk around and can't ever experience pain and not as pessimists where we see the destruction of the world around us and it brings us down, but to live in the reality of who we are and most importantly, who you are. That you have brought hope and grace and life to us again. Teach us to live with you as the only hope of the world because that is what you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.